have a seat. It's very, uh, very unique program that we have today. Very excited that I got to meet Jack Wyant. Took me many years to, and I, I asked him to do a five-minute video, and he timed himself, and it, he timed himself doing 20 minutes. So his wife said, "Maybe we can introduce because it's much that, that she has a hard stop, but we want to get into it." And as that many of you know, what we try to do with 361 is to be intentional more and more on inclusivity. It's part of the 360. The 360 one-term one-term is a partner, Arthur Anderson. They're inspired by the global culture. So much so that I named my firm after it. 360 comes from really Denison connecting. And I wanted everyone to go around the room and introduce themselves, but I've, I've been evolving my vision of that is, is that we need everyone at the table. You know, we need, you know, we need the, the, all the voices, right? Because then we're smarter. We have all those perspectives. And, but I'm looking at my mom in the back row and you know, with all the, the the things that well, the opportunities that she did not have, I think we have this list of all the no's that weren't there and that changed. And it took it took it took time and people to be trailblazers. And what I'm excited about is that Peg Wyant, that I, who I got to meet through through, through Jack, uh, he kept on talking about her, and then we got to meet her at Cincinnati in June. And she was everything he said and, and more. And, and I could just only imagine all these white men in the 60s trying to sell pampers to women, you know, and they didn't have that perspective in, you know, let alone in the, in the management room, let alone the boardroom. So I promise to be, so to be brief, but this is fitting, as many of you know, is what we're trying to do is be intentional. So we have a great opportunity to. Listen to, to Peg and, and how sure she said she thought it wasn't relevant, it's super relevant. We have to know where we're coming from, know where we're going. Then we'll have some Q and A, and then more people are coming. So I'm just gonna give it the floor to you, Peg, and, and thank you for making the time. Okay. Appreciate it. I really appreciate being here. Thank you um, for the nice and short introduction. <laughs> it's a model. I hope some others in the room will follow in the future. <laughs> Um, I wrote this book called The Story of Corporate America's First Women, and to the best of my knowledge, I was. I know I was the first woman manager at the Procter & Gamble Company. They've never been, never been able to find any other company. So Procter was like all companies. They were completely closed to anything other than people who looked exactly like you. And um, I'm going to talk about three things that I think might interest you more than the Procter & Gamble story. And I'm happy to answer questions about that at the end. And I'm happy to talk about uh, managing the boardroom and the playroom. We have four children, and I did that. Our daughter says the subject of any talk I give should be how you got four idiots into the Ivies. <laughs> and, um, but I'm rejecting that. So all of you, um, all of you, <clears throat> as I understand it, are interested in some degree in investing. So what I'm pulling out of this book was three different stories about investing. Um, you could say I can't keep a job because I've done so many different things, but I bounced from one thing to another, primarily because the doors were closed. And when a door is closed, you go where you can go. And <clears throat> so the first one, when I got out of college, 
was very difficult to get a job, and I really couldn't. I actually went back to Congress where I had worked as a junior in college on a Ford Foundation grant and knocked on the same doors and said, hey, I'm back, and I'd like to postpone law school and work here for a while. And, you know, they looked at me like I was crazy. It's fine if somebody else was paying your way, but they weren't going to hire me to actually work in a congressional office. So <clears throat> one night, I had an idea, by the way. I had studied French for many years, and uh, I couldn't speak French at all. I mean, French is very difficult for me. And I thought, you know, one of the reasons that that people can't speak very well in this country is that we don't take young people to Europe or anywhere else. And, and someday, I thought, we're going to be a global society. And people need to understand, young people, where we're going. So instead of doing a, a, a strict, serious, lesson type of approach, I decided to do newsletters in French and Spanish that would motivate the kids. I, I plagiarized, copy, violated copyright laws like crazy. I didn't know any better, but I would take Beatle music that was Spanish, for example, and just use it. And I would take speeches from people and just use them and sell, sell them as records and whatever. And took these kids to Europe. <clears throat> and But the way I got started, I will tell you, you've probably all been an angel investor or been on the other side of angel investing. And the idea I had was, why don't we take all these kids to Europe and do this? But I didn't have any money. And I was at a party one night with my parents, and there was a very old guy. He was about 42. <laughs> he was a wealthy Texan. And I was telling this idea to him, and he said, um, Peg, why don't you go home? Or why don't you, if you I'll give you $5,000 if you write a prospectus. Well, I didn't know what the word meant. And, um, and so, but I didn't want to admit that. So... I told him, I said, let me think about it tonight, and I'll call you in the morning. So I went home, and I looked it up in the dictionary, like any good student. And it said, I have the definition here, but I probably won't take the time to read it since you all know what it is. It sounded pretty much like a college paper to me, so I thought, I can do that. And so I called him the next morning, and I said, send me your money, and we'll get started. And I ended up taking two hundred, and I was 22, by the way, barely, and... I had never been out of the United States. I didn't speak French or Spanish. And, but I somehow managed to convince 240 parents to send their kids, you know, on this trip. And they were between 15 and 18, and I was 22. I was one of them. So <laughs> the trip was wonderful, but we had an airlines um, strike that summer. And when you're an entrepreneur, you know that it doesn't, you can have nine out of ten things right. And one thing goes wrong, and you don't have the depth of a big company like Fortune Campbell to keep going. So um, the airline strike diverted my attention. So when the kids, when the kids went over, went on strike, and two days later, and stayed on strike pretty the whole summer. So I had to convince actually the biggest bank in the United States to give me a plane uh, to bring my kids home because my kids were young and they were chaperoned by teachers and they couldn't handle it. The other people in Europe, you know, probably could. So I got the kids home, but we closed the company, and which for me uh, was heartbreaking. I mean, it was really heartbroken. I put everything I had into this. I knew it was a wonderful idea, but what do you do? You're out of money. So I came home and um, uh, worked um, to, to live at home and figure out how I would get to the next step. 
And by the way, that I ran into when I was doing research on this book, a tape of an interview I did for a Chicago radio station about 10 years later, and they said, oh, you failed. Obviously, you tell people to do their homework first and go work for a big corporation, learn how to run a business, and then start. You know, you wouldn't just go out and start. I said, oh, no, I'd do it again in a nanosecond because that's the only way you really learn. Um, I felt like a failure, and it was actually somewhat depressed after that, but I started interviewing, and I was turned down by about a dozen jobs, about a dozen companies in Cincinnati. And somehow I wandered into Procter. And it was that experience that ended up interesting people because they didn't look about it as a failure. They looked about it as this young person had done a tremendously courageous thing. And the program had gone well. <clears throat> and in deference to the mother in the room, I went to Procter & Gamble and was told exactly what you were told. I walked in after all these turndowns to what I learned was the secretarial office in, in uh, they didn't recruit managers from there, but this very nice lady behind the desk, it was a flower print blouse and gray, gray hair, and she looked at me and she said, fill out the application and then I'll give you the typing test. And for some reason, I said to her, I'll fill out the application. I won't take the typing test. All I can do is think, don't you have a test for that? And so she, uh, some for some reason, again, we'll never know why, she decided to break the rules and give me the test for it. And I did well on it, well enough to get a job. <clears throat> and But we won't talk anymore about Proctor. I did well at Proctor. Um, I will say, I'll read just some of the no's. That, oh, yeah, here's my slide. <laughs> and But the environment I went in was that I couldn't have lunch and oh, with anybody. Because the first day I was there, all the guys went by themselves to lunch. And three or four of them uh, on my brand, and there were four men on the brand and the secretary and me. And so I thought, what am I going to do when I asked the secretary to go to lunch with me? When I got back, the um, one of the brand managers went like this, coming to my office. And so I did, and he said, don't ever do that again. We don't fraternize with the help. <clears throat> so for the next year, I didn't eat lunch. <laughs> I got very thin. <laughs> and I, I actually worked very hard. So when I think about that, it was really painful. But it allowed me to focus on work. There was no lunch. There was no security clearance. After dark, you had to leave. Uh, no upward mobility whatsoever. No sales training. No pregnancies. When I got, when you were pregnant, you were expected to leave the premises. And you certainly couldn't work beyond month three. And when you had a baby, you weren't expected to come back. There was no childcare of any sort. There was no affirmative action, no family leave, no sexual harassment policies um, or prohibitions, no gender equality laws, no shame in stealing ideas or speaking over a softer voice, and no leash on the bad boys with alcohol, drug, roaming hands, switchblades, and guns. <clears throat> and actually, I experienced various incidents with all those things, you know, which we can go into a Q&A if you want, but it's really kind of boring now. Um, so after Proctor, I uh, took some time off. We had four children, and it was clear I was working for the president. I was lucky enough to be tapped by him um, in 1979 when he was about to be CEO, and he knew Proctor was in trouble. We hadn't had any successful new brands in about a decade. And so he was looking for someone 
to help him figure out that Procter & Gamble should be in the next millennium. And he tapped me for the job, which was a fantastic job. So that's how I learned about acquisitions and joint ventures and all those things, which Procter, which up until then was something of an ivory tower had done none of. But after four years of that, or five, <clears throat> I thought, I can't do that. Work for the president of Procter & Gamble and raise four kids. And uh, you might wonder how helpful was your husband. And <laughs> it was a different era. He was not different than anyone else. But I'll tell you, I'm going to sum it up with a poem our youngest child wrote when he was eight. And he said, oh, dad, oh, dad, you make me oh so sad. You go to the grocery once a year and come home and say, look what I did, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, times have changed. We're men have taken much more responsibility for the house. And I think it, it, it's not only good giving women more freedom, it's good for the guys, too. And it's good for the children. So that's really wonderful. My second um, sort of investment story is that after I was home for a while, uh, everybody thought I was brain dead because mothers are not thought of as thinkers. I mean, they literally, literally when I applied to jobs and asked people for consulting things, it was like, are you kidding? I mean, you haven't done anything in five or six years. So I did two or three different ventures. I started the real estate company. Some of you went to, to the, one of our buildings today. But I also um, started a venture capital fund called Isabella Capital because I was, Jack was into the venture world at that time. And every conference I went to, there were no women. There were no women asking for money, uh, presenting, and there were no women partners. And I thought, you know what? I can take down one more industry before I hang it up. So I started the Venture Capital Fund. And we started in 99, which those of you who are familiar with the history of venture capital. It was probably the worst time to start a venture capital fund in the history of time. And it was not pleasant. The... And I'm telling you this because since you're in the investment business, it may positively affect some attitude too. Um, Procter & Gamble had been tough because the doors had been closed. But when I raised my hand and said, I'd like to do that, you know, I'd like to try what the guys do, it was a pretty consistent yes. You know, we'll give it a chance. And um, venture capital industry was not so. Uh, I wasn't invited to dinners. Uh, one time after I'd been in the business two or three years, Jack was going to go off to a board meeting, and he said it was going to go early because it was a board dinner. I said, well, what's that? I've never been invited. You know? and, um, and it's still not very friendly. The case that's now being brought, oh, and I was threatened by lawyers, all kinds of things, and I think one of the reasons, frankly, it's fine for women to get power to hear, but money is the ultimate power. And the ultimate place where money resides is in private equity and venture capital. So I don't know that most guys, and everyone in this room obviously exempt, you know, really want to share that. Um, but at any rate, the experience for me was not a very positive one. The other thing I didn't like um, is it was there was a very short-term orientation in the business. You know, if the angel people wanted this, Series A wanted this, Everybody was looking out for their own returns when I recognized that that's um, their job is to get returns for those people that have invested in that round. However, somewhere along the line, I think people lose sight of the fact if everybody develops the entity and adds value, then everybody will make money. And I didn't see very much of that. So it's not an industry that I would comfortably want to go back to. 
It is an industry that today remains more close to women, strangely enough, than it was in 99. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, we outperformed all the guys on this <laughs> And, you know, we delivered about a 20% return, which doesn't sound like much after a decade, but the vast majority of venture capital funds in 99 were underwater big time, so I was very proud of that. Um, and so it's an industry that it would be good if there were more women in it, and it would be good not just for diversity's sake. I don't think people should do things for diversity's sake. They should do it because there's smart ideas out there that are not being tapped. And if the room is all men, frankly, they all think alike. Not exactly, but closer than, than, than if there's a woman. And matter of fact, when I was at Procter, um, one of the things I had to do at one point was to look at all the, we had a group of people who responded to the consumer mail. And it was male in those days. She literally wrote a letter. And I was asked to review all that. And the first thing that came back, it was all women who did it. It was a women's job. And I said, we got to stop that, um, change that organization. It's a female ghetto. And they said, pardon me? And I said, it's terrible. Because when you have all women or all men, it's not as good as if it's a mixed crowd. And you're drawing from the talents and strengths of everybody. Um, my third entrepreneurial venture was or was and continues to be in the real estate um, world. And um, in real estate, uh, I have applied the principles I learned to Proctor, and I think it's been a very good industry. It's very friendly. It's, you can be an entrepreneur. You can go buy a building. You can do what you want with it. It's, it's, there are not many limitations in the beginning. You couldn't get any loans. I mean, I couldn't. You know, I had to have practically everybody in my family sign when I bought my first building. But that's gone away a bit, you know, now. So that's a, and the lesson from my perspective is go back to do what you know. And um, the lesson from Isabella Capital, from my perspective, is, in a way, I'm getting this backwards. Uh, start before you're ready is one, and I can do it. It's one. That was what I, the attitude I took when I started starting all kinds of different companies. Uh, so that's my perspective on three different investing, you know, vehicles, if you will. And with that, I'll ask, answer any questions anybody wants to wants to raise. Yes. If you were to go back to being 22 and tell yourself something, what would it be? Or advise yourself something? I, I just do it. I mean, when I said the start before you're ready is a phrase I've come up with later, but that's what I did. I mean, I just started that company. I started a Proctor. I started a venture company. And I, I think somehow uh, I got the right attitude. The, the other thing I would say, I'll quote something that I learned from my mother very early on, because lots of times people can feel like outsiders. And when you feel like an outsider, you don't have the confidence necessary to really do something important. And when I was 15, I went with my mother to uh, Michigan, and we were coming downstairs to go out to dinner when she spied off to the right the wedding reception. And she said, no need to go out. I'll just, we'll just go in there. And I was mortified. <laughs> I mean, really mortified. When you're 15 years old, can you imagine? And I said, Mom, we cannot do that. Um, we're not invited. And she said, with a great deal of bravado, she waltzed into this crowded room, uh, the only reason I'm not invited is they don't know me yet. 
And I, I, I took that with me. So when every door was closed, I thought, they don't really mean it. You know, they just don't know me. <laughs> and I think if everybody took that attitude, it would be very healthy. Yes? So you're a friend of Gloria Steinem? Oh, am I a friend? <laughs> no, we went to the same college at different times together. <laughs> and I know her. She's on the board of Smith. We both went to Smith College. But I, I would like to be a friend, but I can't say we haven't intersected. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes? Who do you look to for inspiration? Oh, Jack, of course. <laughs> oh, um, well, you know, it's a half century late. <laughs> you know, most of the inspirational people that I looked to in the, certainly in the business world were uh, men because there were no women that I had ahead of me to look at, really. And um, so I had a lot of role models there. John Snail, the CEO of P&G that I worked for, you know, and John Pepper, who was the young man who, after I did well in that test, decided to break the mold and actually say, well, he raised a question and said to the head of personnel, tell me once again why it is we don't hire women. And he went on to be CEO. But there are people like that. Um, that um, and if you ask me for a female mentor today, I'd say it's my daughter, our daughter, you know, who's a rock star in real estate on the West Coast. Yes. Uh, have you gone back to venture? You said that uh, was an experience. Uh, no, I, 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 you know, I. Um, women need to be in venture for lots of reasons, but it's not an industry that's, got, that's any better today than it was 20 years ago. And you know, there's only so uh, many times I want to beat my head against a brick wall. You know, I mean, I don't know when that industry will change. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't personally go there. I mean, as I said, the the, um, the way the investment world sometimes treats women, you know, um, I don't think Martha Stewart's another example. Insider trading, and there's lots of people who've done insider trading. I don't know many who've gone to jail, and there are lots of guys that have exaggerated their story and venture. And I don't know any. And she's going to go to jail, I bet. But I don't know many who've gone to jail. So it's just. I don't know why. I mean, other than the fact it's, it's where big money is, and people don't want to share it. I've seen, I've seen more partners and more uh, founders. That's true. I have a friend that was with me at Facebook at the time. She started her own fund that didn't work out. Now she's in Samsung, and they're like innovation funds. Right. But yeah, she had a really hard time with her own fund that she started. It's, it's tough. It's really tough. And um, as I said, we did well at the end of the day, but I don't look back at that experience, you know, and smile a lot. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, some insights on why you think your venture capital fund did well. Oh well, it's, it's really that's a good question. Um, the first I invested the first half of the fund right away, very quickly, the way a lot of people were in '99, and maybe they still are, because they want to go invest it quick and then raise another fund. And um, and I followed that, and I decided because I was new to the industry that I would only invest in uh, businesses that were led by major proven venture capital firms. And so I did that, and I followed those guys right off the hill, you know, like a lemmy. And and then 
we had an annual meeting, and it was two years into it. And again, I think it's a little bit of a girl's, girl's approach. A lot of guys would have just sort of glossed over the fact that they still had investments in those companies. And I said, you know, yes, we have something there, but the money's gone. You know, we'll never get the money out. So I owned up to the fact that half of the money was literally gone. And at the, at the meeting, by the way, I'll say this because I think it was kind of kind of good. Um, I said, now I'm going to call the other half of the fund. And you can imagine, there were a lot of people who thought, okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we can live with losing half the money, but we really don't want you to. And there, I had no reason, nobody had any reason to believe I could be successful at this point when you lose literally 50% of the thing. And I thought, okay. So we were at this very fancy club in Cincinnati. And I had lots of uh, mahogany wood, and I had the waiters at that point bring in buckets. They were, they were beautiful, fancy buckets filled with tomatoes. And I said, now it's time for investor participation. You know, you could throw the tomatoes at me. And they, it took everybody a minute to, to realize what I had just said. Here's your weapon. And, but then everybody laughed, and I got all the money, you know, and we ended up making money. And why did we make money in the second half? I thought, well, first of all, I realized that, you know, just following somebody else. They did, at that period of time, the venture world was not doing well at all. And so I thought, the only thing I know is Procter & Gamble. So I went back to my Procter & Gamble approach. And I thought, I'm only going to invest in things I think that I can see where we add value over time. I don't care the timeline. I don't care. I'm not looking for a quick profit. And um, we had several companies make money. And um, including one that was a marketing company um, that was 20 times our money, which of course saved the day. But there were several that one of the early companies that did research in DNA and RNA, you know, and we did uh, invested in the company that um, froze um, um, cells from the umbilical cord, stem cells, which was very early. So they were kind of, frankly, things that women might be apt to realize had value, and those were all very successful. Yes? Okay, you gave my uh, daughter some advice that I think is worth sharing for the group when she was looking for a raise. So good advice for parents around for their daughters. Well, I think if I understand, she'd been passed over and she was... She got promoted but didn't get the yeah. match she thought she was going to deserve. And she was going to go... I said, don't have her ask just to be equal with the guys. They've screwed up. And so tell her... Hey, Tell her to go in and say that she deserves more. And I think she got it, she got right? It. Yep. Again, it's that exaggeration yeah. kind of thing. This is, this happened at a dinner in June <laughs> at Jack and Peg's house, and Mark and I were sitting, and Peg said, no, that's the wrong thing to tell her. <laughs> so I took Peg's yeah. advice and told her the right thing, and she followed it, and she still went again and got another one. So that's you also would have got the Special Olympics going for corporate sponsorship, yeah. and that's a impact and social responsibility is a big thing. And that's a story I think would be great for people to hear. Yeah, I, I'm very proud of that. It's nice of you to, uh, to bring it up. I, I was asked to, well, I'll tell a little bit of two parts. I was asked to do a group promotion. Procter and Gamble in those days had individual brands, and we never got together as a group. You could pick up a uh, Sunday newspaper and see coupons from 10 brands, but they weren't working together or leveraging their strengths. So the first one I did, um, we got 20 brands and called it House Full of Values. And I'll make this quick, but I wanted a premium where people could 
collects where they buy literally 40 products and get the premium for free. And we couldn't find anything other than a plastic, you know, Fisher-Price house of the kind that, that you can buy today in any Target. And so one night I went home, and um, our then five-year-old, five, six-year-old son was playing with a Pampers carton and drawing a gingerbread house on it. And I said, Jackie, keep going. And it was, you know, you can imagine a kid's version of the gingerbread house. And the next day I folded it up and took it into the head of the art department and I said, copy this. And it turned out, I mean, to be, it was cardboard, so it was cheap and people had to do 40 box tops to get it. And it turned out to be the most successful promotion in the history of time. And the reason I want to bring that one up before I get to Special Olympics, I don't know very many men who would have taken a drawing of their five-year-old into the office and with all seriousness said, you got to copy this. You know, it's just not the way the guys would necessarily think. Um, so they asked me to do another one. And the next year we did something around the Olympics. And, uh, and the idea then was that Procter & Gamble had never done a promotion that was uh, driven in part by charitable end result. And um, I think, again, I, a woman was more apt to think that way because we were more involved in the, you know, the cultural, textural aspects of life and education and the arts and all of that kind of stuff. And so I um, said, well, given the coupon, the theme will be the Olympics. But the drive for people to redeem those coupons, well, we will give two cents for every coupon redeemed to the Olympic Committee. It was wildly successful. And because I was right, women are motivated by things like that. Maybe men are too, it's just they wouldn't have been sapped to maybe bring it up. Um, following year, they said, well, we want you to do it again. And I said, wait a minute, once every four years, there this comes to the Olympics. And so I had lived in Washington, and I was familiar with the Special Olympics, which at that point was just in Washington. And so I sent somebody uh, who worked for me to go see the Kennedys, and they met with Eunice and came back. And so we did the same thing the following year around the Special Olympics, and it put Special Olympics on the map. I mean, everybody, they redeemed it the same way, and uh, so I was very proud of having a role in that. Awesome. Yeah. It's wonderful. I was going to ask, what do you think are the biggest kind of systemic challenges for women today? You know, for example, guys tend to go out for happy hour and drinks. Women are more wellness focused, especially if they're now mothers. They're, they're not going to go out and drink. The challenges, what are the big challenges? Left for women, yeah. Um, well, the, the big, the biggest challenge by far is managing a household and a job. And there's just nothing that compares to that. I've seen some people shake their heads. And there's no question that the guys do not engage as much or as deeply in the household. The vast majority, I don't mean to exclude, but I'd say the majority. And frankly, this is not, um, necessarily politically popular to say, but I think it's biological. You know, I mean, you have these babies and you're not going to abandon them and you're not. And women, by and large, will not sacrifice their children at the altar of money. And no offense, men, men will. I mean, they will go for the money, the power. They just are trained that way. And um, and that's biological, too, I think. It's the hunter instinct. So trying to manage that, I think, is the big the big challenge. In my case, I, I left because there was no possibility of, part-time or anything like that. That, that. that was another thing that just didn't exist at the time. 
and coming back was very difficult because everybody thought I'd lost it. So, um, uh, but I think trying to, and I don't think it's as simple as, well, we can allow you to work half time because the choice of the matter is the companies do write off the, um, the way, you know, they, they, they're just off, that's the mommy track, you're off the fast track. So it's hard. I think the real answer is uh, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, a woman, my niece, a very bright niece who worked at Procter & Gamble 10 years, and she left about a year ago to start her own company, a research company. And she has two kids who are 10 and 8, and she can work as much as she wants and, you know, stay in it. But I think at the end of the day, when they go off to college, she can rip and roar. And I felt that way. Once our kids were off to college, I didn't start a venture fund or serious real estate investment until they were gone, because I didn't want to put them at risk. Any other women in the room can, or men can weigh into that, because that's a challenging part of it. Yes. So uh, you seem to be very strong, very determined. Many women are not as strong and determined, and you are blessed with courage to be among men and feel, you know, no different than the next guy. So what is your suggestion to women who feel vulnerable in men's environment and uh, who feel uh, men's environment as setback in their career? I, I, and then that's also a very good question. I, I, and I want to say right at the onset, one of the, one of the fact that I was a privileged kid in all ways. I had a brilliant father, and I already told you about my badass mother. And I went to all-girls schools, and I lived on a 600-acre farm and was an athlete. You know, I rode and was competitive tennis player. So what box don't you check? I mean, I had every advantage there. Um, I, I, my advice to all women would be to get out there and just do it and compete. And, and I'll say this, despite the Theron Elizabeth trial that goes on, that uh, what they need to do is exaggerate. Women put themselves down. I mean, how often have you heard if I say that's a beautiful dress and your response to it would be one of two things. Oh, I've had this for a long time, or I got it on sale. <laughs> I have never said that's a nice looking suit where a guy says that. Either way. <laughs> you know, don't put yourself down and just go forward and do it. And, you know, it's kind of fake it, you know, tell you to make it, but um, once you start doing things, you do begin to, you know, to have confidence. I also think that athletics is a hugely helpful um, thing to do. Yeah, you're, you're an athlete. Absolutely. And don't you think that empowers you? It was what I really felt wonderful when I played tennis. And I remember the first time, I was like 16, playing with some guy who I was interested in. And I thought, do I beat him or not? You know? <laughs> But I knew I could, and I did, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, that gives you power. I think our kids were fortunate enough to have successful children. They were all wonderfully successful athletes. And the time they were 10, 11, 12, they were being powerful men. You know, and that, that gives you a lot, you know, a lot to feel good about yourself. And you think, okay, I can do it on the athletic field. I can do it in the office, too. Yes. You bring up the idea of women in entrepreneurship, and I know there's a lot of organizations that focus on women in networking. And I'm curious whether there is um, women-focused incubators or accelerators. Oh, there are. There's a lot of um, pitch companies.
competition opportunities stay on college campus to train and I'm curious whether or not there's anything female focused in the cell air. I'm sure there is. I'm not currently familiar. You all might do know more about that. But there um, you know, but but I think that the my own, I, I like it better when women just compete with the men too. I don't like the separation quite as much because it's there's something about it that you know isn't to me as as real as um, although I will say this Having gone to women's schools in high school and college, you know that was that was a huge advantage because I never never thought I couldn't do anything. When I you know charter a plane and take or two planes and take you know two or three hundred people a year, no problem. But I I don't know that I would have been the same had I not had that female experience. You know, female experience yesterday. Did the natural gas then? Did you watch the Burger King uh, King uh, uh, tennis tournament? I guess. Bobby Riggs. I absolutely. Matter of fact, I um, the book opens with that story because I was asked when I was uh, at Procter and Gamble in 1973 in June if I would give a speech at the year-end meetings. The year-end meetings were very formal affairs. They brought people from all over the world, and there were no men in the I mean only men in the audience, no women. But they came and asked because affirmative action was a new concept then, and the government had just said that you couldn't get military, you couldn't sell the government unless you had a military, I mean, unless you, in military sales, unless you had an affirmative action program. So Procter & Gable had just learned this, and they thought, oh my God, we got to get women here. So they asked me if I would give a speech at the year-end meeting. The first speech would be given by the lawyer who would talk about the stick, and then I would follow and talk about the carrot, because I would be the carrot, you know? <laughs> I mean, I would be... They didn't care what I said as long as I got up there and just, you know, didn't fall on my face or something. And um, I sat there and thought, you know, I'm going to be nine months pregnant. And they don't know it, but I know it. And I thought, do I do that or not do it? And you weren't even supposed to be in the building when you were not four months pregnant. So that, for some reason, and um, I did that. You know, I said, okay, I told them. And then they found out I was pregnant, and they couldn't turn they couldn't turn me away. But um, I, I talk about when I walked across that stage, I was so afraid. There was not a single person in the audience under, I'd say, forty, and there was about five hundred people, and they were all men. And I was nine months pregnant. And um, I thought, what made me? What 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 I thought about as I walked across that stage was Billie Jean King. She had done that, and you know, I don't mean to put myself in the same you know league. But I thought, she can do that, I can do that. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was a little familiar with the law because my dad, being a judge, had just had won her first case uh, you know, on gender discrimination. And so those rolled through my head as I went to the podium and I got through the speech. And we had, uh, the baby was born two days later. <laughs> so that instantly changed all the policies of Procter and several Fortune 500 companies because it was so darn obvious, you know. Why did you have, why do you make them leave if they don't have to? Like at the end of the book, you tell a story about how you keep, how the family stays together and involved. Can you share that with the group? Because I think there's lessons for us when we, kids get older and they get disconnected. And you seem to have done a great job with Jackie. Yes. 
um, we just never let him go. <laughs> and we, we have four children, and we always had a great deal of fun together. We spent a lot of time with them when they were little. Uh, both of us coached their teams. We gave up. Uh, we never went to parties. We never went to symphonies or operas or anything. Anything. It was work and, and you know, and play. And uh, I think the kids got that message. And I do say in the book, it's not, it's not, uh, people talk about quality time with children. I don't think it's quality time, it's time. When you make your choices to spend it with kids, they get that. And uh, so, and we're very fortunate that the kids have all grown up. Okay, Greg, I think they like them now. Oh, do they? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Hey, I, I would add, with respect to Stephen's question, uh, First of all, we live in Cincinnati, and our children are in Philadelphia, Brooklyn Heights, Chicago, and San Francisco. So remaining connected means Zoom and telephone and airplanes. And and we get together religiously, so to speak, every Easter time and every Thanksgiving time. And, and, and there are various events, particularly related to the game of squash, that cause us to be together. So I would say that we are together as a group, four children, their their families. Those four are married, and they have nine children, so nine grandchildren. And I'd say four or five, maybe more times a year, we're together with all or most of them. But it's activities, and all, and the children are on the board of Granite Properties, the company that Bank founded and has run for 33 years. Uh, that you obviously, some of you are familiar with as a result of seeing some buildings yesterday or today, and they're all they're all in historic renovation. So it's not it's not like buying a shopping center and and, and uh, never paying any attention. These are interesting, flavorful situations. Well, that, that's a good point. I, I put the kids on the board mm -hmm. uh, when they were really young, and uh, and. Uh, yeah, they're, they're twice a year at least done. Oh, we do bi-monthly meetings. Bi-monthly yeah. meetings. Yeah. It was quarterly, yeah. and at the beginning they didn't spend, they didn't pay much attention, um, but enough that they learned and contributed, and I thought that they're really our audience if you're in the apartment business, and so that's been really good. And then we started a small foundation, and uh, the kids are involved in that too, because my thought was if you're going to teach them how to make money, you should teach them how to give them away as well. Yes. Yes. Greg, I'm doing a keynote for the PNG Alumni Association next month. Oh, good. Future of work. What would you want to tell your former teachers about how you guys had that conversation with them? That's the future of work. Oh, I was going to say about the future of work. Oh gosh, I don't know if that's a subject that I, you know. Well, what about impact? What would you tell them about? About just doing their work, but also trying to have impact. Oh, I, I think the young people today are much more inclined that way. I mean, they already believe that they're going to have an impact. I, I think that. Um, one of the things that I said in the talk to Proctor is that um, Proctor better be prepared to be entirely sustainable um, and do many other things that you know that are very much in the world's interest because young people will not have anything to do with it. They won't 
work for those companies who aren't. So I think that they're, they're leading us in this direction, which I think is wonderful. Um, future of work. I mean, I'm in the office rental business, and people say, um, you know, how can you, or aren't you worried about filling your buildings? And absolutely not, because I think that there is, you can be flexible. What COVID taught us is you can be flexible, and that's a really good lesson, more flexible than we ever thought we could be. But it also taught us about the value of community. And, and that people are not going to work totally remote. They're just not going to do that. And, and there'll, there'll be more spacing. There'll be more consideration to help, which is a good thing. But I think work will largely go on in a way similar to what we've seen in the past. Yes. You said that you put your children on the board really young. I'd love to know how young you did it. Hmm. I think the youngest was 14. <laughs> and uh, as I said, they didn't, they, they viewed it as a father, you know, then. Now they pay attention to that. Mm. Uh, I'm also proud of the fact we should be that even though the company does well, and I, oh, I never, I paid them nothing for all these years, and they never asked for any money. Um, starting about a year ago, I give them $500 a meeting, you know. But um, they haven't been selfish about it. But they do realize it's a nice com size company now, so they do pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to do to engage the, the kids. A lot of my best investment ideas have come from children, by far. And I'll give you a, by far, because they're in tune with the future. And, um, you know, one was Apple, our son Jackie, sometime in the early 90s, I think. And then our son, Tim, uh, we started a little retirement account for them. And so I called Tim one time, and he was in his late 20s. And I said, Tim, maybe you should take some money off the table with Apple. And what he did, he covered the phone, I could hear it. And he had about five people working for him. He runs a nonprofit. And he said, hey, guys, do you still you all like the iPhone? And then I heard, yes, yes, we still use it. No, Mom, I'll hold the course. <laughs> you know? But, you know, the kids are smart. They're really smart. And um, so lots of ideas come from them. Yes? As an investor, how much are you thinking about environment, social governance, ESG, and data and sustainability as you filter your inbound inquiries? Well, I think about sustainability a lot. The building that we toured today, we put, it's gold lead certified, which is, that's a high level, it's hard to get. Solar panels have nothing to do with that designation, by the way, but we put solar panels on the roof, and uh, there's, it won't pay out, not for 10 plus years. And we were the first commercial building in the city of Cincinnati to do that, which is amazing. But I thought, we believe in it, so we're going to walk, walk the talk. And, but speaking on the value of impact, it's not entirely charitable, but do good or stuff either. I'm acutely aware that the young people I want to come into that building will value that. So, you know, even though it doesn't pay out on paper that way, it, it does in other ways. So, and all the other subjects you mentioned, I don't think I'd qualify to talk about. Peg, with respect to your book, I, I witnessed you spend about 4,000 4, hours <laughs> researching and life. writing your book, yeah. One Red Shoe. And the way it began is about five years ago or so, 
we were having breakfast with a 35-year-old woman who was head of sales for a tech company in which we had, in which my, my firm, the, the guy firm that she doesn't like, had an investment. And, and uh, I mentioned to this person, hey, my wife Peg might stop by, and in the event she does, just to let you know, and I gave her a quick thumbnail. Well, she was the first woman ever at Procter and Gamble, and you know P and G, it's 100 billion in revenue and 100,000 people. It was 1967, and women were not permitted at all to do much of anything there. And so it's quite a quite a quite an ordeal that she went through for a 20-year time period before then launching and pivoting and doing other things. Well, the moment Peg walked in for for her free breakfast. This woman said, hey, Jack just mentioned XYZ to me, and you, you've got to write a book. Thanks for five. This is kind of riveting in a sense. Oh, I, nobody would care about my experience. That's old news. The, what you face, she says to this young lady five years ago, is nothing like what I faced. It's a, it's a much different world, and there is this long, almost theatrical pause at the end of which the young lady said, no, you're wrong. We faced all of the stuff that you did back then. Yes, there have been, there have been some changes, but we face it all. So we then began kind of puzzling off and on for a couple of years. Remember what so-and-so said? Did they got to write that book? Nah, not too busy. Well, maybe. So one day they said, no. I'm now going to write it, and boom, she wore down. Never, never imagining that it would be 4,000 hours and, and a whole lot of you know, research of your own life. And then she expanded it to cover not just P and G, but that's the focal point of yeah. One Red Shoe, of what it was like for a woman back back in the in the early days, of a half century ago. And I only said that. For a little context, as a, what is it and from what did it come from? Last question. Okay. Like this. So, we, this is, you're an inspiration. Oh, sweet. And what we're uh, trying to do is being more intentional on inclusion. Feminine, black, brown, it's all, everybody around the table. But uh, the other aspect uh, about helping being the first to go to college is, is mentors. We have a lot of students in the room. I'm asking all of the people, I think everyone's mentor. I'm a mentor. If your children mentor you as to what to invest in, I think it's a 360. Yeah. Uh, mentoring. So, well, who were your mentors and how do you look at the importance of mentors? What advice do you give your children or others who are seeking mentors? And then if you're a student from Denison right now, can you raise your hand? Thank you for coming. On that subject, I, I, I think mentors are all around. You know, um, there's a lot of mentors in history books that are well worth, you know, reading. I mean, Cleopatra, for example, a woman, but, um, and she practically she ruled the world, you know. And um, so, and, the, and I, I don't think that a mentor has to be, if you're a woman, it has to be a woman, or a guy it has to be a guy. I just think they're all around. It's anybody that you admire. And um, and I think if you're a student, you should definitely have the attitude. Um, you know, I'm going to reach out and ask whomever. You know, because I personally have never turned anybody down ever. 
could call and ask for help. You know, could we have lunch or coffee or would you look at this? Because you just don't do that. And it doesn't happen all that much. So um, just speak up, you know, speak up. Yeah. I, I venture to say that the modern interpretation of mentorship is evolving. We have talked a lot about um, mentors in our lives looking over our shoulder thinking you don't even realize how important they actually were at a given time. And as an example, I learn from students all the time, constantly. So if there is someone that enters your life daily, monthly, whenever, right, it's right. just a fantastic opportunity to learn and teach and share. And I think yeah. to Gary's question about um, workforce development and future trends, I think mentorship is going to be one of the bright lights. Mm -hmm. There's reverse mentorship, there's environmental mentorship, there's a lot of support, and many of us are here because of impact, and there's a lot of health and wellness implications. I think, mentorship, so. I, I think, I think, I think you're absolutely right on all those points. I, I do think that there's no substitute whatsoever for just doing it, you know, the school of hard knocks, being out there. To go back to my first story, starting a business. And I said, oh, we can change that for the world. I mean, it, it, you know, there's just no substitute for that. Yes. And on the subject of mentorship, uh, it, it's synonymous oftentimes with volunteerism. And I'm curious if there's a show of hands in the room who feels that mentors should be compensated for their efforts, much like entrepreneurs need mentorship, but there's just no way to get enough mentorship around. And if there's a way to capitalize their efforts uh, in a commercial sense, is that something that would be interesting for people here? I don't think so myself. So do you think that uh, mentorship is, is somehow side and separate from, you know, a, a monetary uh, desire? Yeah, it's like friendship to me, you know, leadership or certain things that you, yeah, I, I don't, but I, I never thought of that, so I could be short-sighted. I would venture to say there's a lot of overlap in coaching and yes. you know, these are very complementary kinds of experiences. And certainly there's curriculum, probably the focus is in on developing mentorship practices, but it is indeed a practice and it's a discipline and something business leaders are going to build into um, their lives because it's a real exchange and give and take and I think it's going to be a path forward. I just want to say, Jack told me about the book. I, I bought it, read it quickly, loved every minute of it. It's available on Amazon. I, no, seriously, I bought it for my daughters and my wife and gave, gave it to teach them, and they're, they're working through it. I couldn't put it down. And, oh, and just, so say, nice. Mark, Mark knows I, I got through the book very quickly.
And Harry's father, I think my, my dad back gave me two or three hints. I remember it was Lee Iacocca. Uh, it was like, but there's another, there's some iconic books. There's one book, uh, What Color Your Parachute? And that's Harry's father uh, that wrote that. He's, he's himself just published a book, Future of Work. And everything's, and the, the theme he gives is reset. We're all in a big reset right now. <clears throat> to be really positive, because I think that flexibility that I mentioned hopefully can translate into a lot more flexibility for women, and it's still a, a struggle to find my wife. We have three kids and everything up. But if you could lend your voice, Gary, and, and but on the theme also, because basically one of the things he says in one of our future work here, which thanks to Simon introducing Gary, uh, is we're all going to be working, get ready, you know. It's a hundred-year journey. We're, we're going to live longer. And I keep telling Raj Balani that not just the first five years of launching your, your careers, it's, it's the next 50-plus, right? So I know the students here, um, but you're going to be alumni just like me from class to 90, and you need, you're going to need help from your, 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 your 40s, 50s, and 60s. So uh, that's, and we're all being in it. It's a really interesting time, and you're at that zeitgeist of it. He just interviewed the Lieutenant Governor of Michigan tomorrow, the Lieutenant Governor of Ohio, all these states are trying to transition to. So if we could uh, just hear, hear from you and a few other voices, then we'll, 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 we'll network, we'll cocktails, and we'll mentor. Well, not all cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> for everybody, but yeah. I got in trouble at, at, some, at one point. But go ahead. Yeah, not just briefly. So uh, first off, I'm Gary Bowles. I'm the chair for the future work with uh, Singular University. Uh, which I would uh, normally say is based in Silicon Valley, but actually it's completely virtual nowadays. So, just a couple of quick thoughts. So, first okay. off, yeah. Go on that side, the microphone there. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're all at the beck and call of our technology. <laughs> so, we have to stand where the technology wants us to. So, uh, just really briefly. So, uh, one of the marvelous things I think that one of the marvelous gifts that I give is. Uh, I just wrote a book called The Next Rules of Work. Now, I didn't count the number of hours, uh, but probably not dissimilar. Um, and, and the path was somewhat similar to I had one or two folks just suggesting, well, maybe you should try to sort of gel some of this into a book. I just came out three weeks ago. Um, but the, the thesis was, if you think about the time that Peg talked about and the courageous approach that she took to work, I sort of thought of that as the old rules of work. There's a whole bunch of things related to the way that we've worked in the past in the organizations that we create, the way that we as humans channel our energies. And those old rules, uh, Peg was actually a, uh, a warrior in the trenches to try to change them because a lot of those rules had a whole bunch of positive effects for a certain kind of person and a lot of negative effects, or at least not the positive effects it could have had for a wide range of other people. And then we sort of saw these new rules, and many of them now you've heard, you know, the tech companies are all trying to sort of change the way that we work, and more and more of our communication happens over these digital distraction machines. And, uh, but there's these next rules, the rules that we've been talking about for some time in terms of us being able to work as part of distributed teams, learn in a variety of different contexts, to be able to continually collaborate with humans all around the world. And then along came a virus. And so I, I called this the Great Reset. I wrote an article back in April of, of 2020 um, where I labeled this period the Great Reset. And my thesis was, I don't think this is just a pause. I think we're actually going to rewrite 
the rules of work, the rules of learning, uh, the rules of organization. So I think we're going to look back in 10 years and realize we kind of broke the seal on a number of things. We realize that we have the capacity to be able to link to just about any human on the planet, although half of them, believe it or not, still don't have reliable connectivity. That's something we've got to solve. We found out that we can actually work in different contexts ourselves, whether it's alone at home or hopefully, as Peggy's saying, more and more people collaborating at work, although hopefully with more control. But I think one of the greatest opportunities is that we found that we can make connections between humans to help them to move the next step. And so that's really, I think, the, the onboarding to mentoring and the discussions I hope that each of us have in one-on-one uh, -on -one and in small groups. But what ends up happening in each of our lives, my father found this out 50 years ago. He was a recovering minister. He got laid off in a budget crunch. And he found out lots of people were getting laid off or just having trouble finding work. And so that's how he ended up writing this book. But one of the things that he found is that each of us hit these inflection points, these periods in our lives where we need help for the next step. Now, I think of mentoring as about a half dozen different use cases. And, and yes, there are use cases where you want to pay somebody because you want them to stay engaged and, and helping on a, a long term or where they might not have done it otherwise. But there's a range of different ways. You can mentor somebody in five minutes. You can help them. There's an old Chinese aphorism. When a student is ready, the teacher appears. And so you can help someone in five minutes with an insight they might never have gotten before that might help them to pivot in a new direction. So that's why you engage. That's why you do exactly what Peggy said. You take the time. You make yourself accessible. But there are others who need more help. I just did a talk. Um, this is, I think, city number seven of 13 cities, 21 talks that I'm doing on a month road show for my book. Uh, and I was in Fargo, North Dakota just before this. And I spoke to a group called You Code Girls. And I said, now, no, it's a virtual talk with some, some in person. I said, now, what would normally happen is somebody would come in and they'd say something and then they'd go away. So I'm not going to go away. You're going to find me on LinkedIn. You're going to ping me on LinkedIn. And then if there's anything I can do to help you, there's a theory that's called strength of weak ties. The per people that you know really, really well might be very helpful to you, but the people you know the least are the ones that can help you the most because they're, they're at the edge of your network. And I said, so I'm at the edge of your network. And I got three girls follow, follow up afterwards, and they say, I want you to be my mentor. And my immediate response was, yes, email me, and let's talk about how I can help. So I think that's really our opportunity. Is we, this is the great reset. I, I say we have a new start date. And if you can make yourself just a, you know, if, if you can help others, make yourself more open to that. Even if you're young, you're farther down the road than some other people are. You can help somebody that's just a few steps back someone just a little bit younger or even more disadvantaged than you might be to be able to help them along their next step. So I'm going to stop there, but I think um, we see this opportunity. So and I'm looking forward to meeting as many of you as possible. Can I ask you a very difficult question? Absolutely, Simon. You specialize in difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I prize our friendship so much. So what is the difference between advice, which is not what wanted, yeah. and uh, Mentorship, because, you know, if we want to go into mentorship, we kind of give advices. Or you believe it's not about advices, it's about leading people with questions, and then it's not an advice. Yeah. So, so first off, um, it is a hard question, but let me, let me tell you how I would frame it. So, first off, um, 
Each of us has an arc in our lives. We have a lived experience. We have a set of experiences, sometimes wonderful experiences, sometimes challenging experiences. There's certain speed bumps or even roadblocks or mountains that come in front of us. So the first thing to do when you're somebody approaches you and they want to talk to you, they want to be able to get your insights, um, is to try to understand their lived experience because we take our own experiences and we automatically impress them on others. Somebody says, oh, I'm in college immediately. Our college experience, well, I, I don't have enough college to step into a thimble, which is why it's kind of ironic I'm here. But uh, we, we immediately impress our college experience and, and when they say that. And so first step is always to understand somebody's lived experience. I've, I, I've often found myself about to give advice and then realize, well, no, it's not actually advice they're asking for. If I understand what they're looking for, they first want somebody to hear them. The first step is they want to be heard. Second step is they want to be understood. So the first is that, yes, I hear you. I understand what you're talking about. Second, I, I, let, me, let me ask you another question and another question to make sure I understand your lived experience. Okay, now, I think I know enough to know the challenge or the need or the opportunity that you're talking about. Now, I, I have my own way of approaching this. You have your own style. Uh, I actually don't give advice. I say, look, I see a couple different potential scenarios at this point. Here's a couple things that you might want to do. And you choose. Um, now, parents don't often want to avoid giving advice. They, want to, they, they feel that they've got these, this experience that they've had, and they want to continue to help young people, and especially they want their young people to benefit from their experience. And as they get older, they think that they're now a set of new experiences, especially when they're young adults, that they can help them with. Well, it is a challenge because you've got to realize that not everybody wants you to tell them what to do with their lives with the next step they need to go through and need to be protected from it. So I, I would urge, there's advice. There's like just a point in time, do this thing. But mentoring, I would urge you to listen enough to know, does this person need help on the next step or the next five steps? And then take it a step at a time, but determine whether or not you actually can help them to be able to navigate that next step. Well, a lot of subjects, it deserves a deep dive and then a summit. So we're, we're going to put there's a bar at the back. You know, Absolutely, the bar is calling. So we can't go into the deep dive of this. I would just add that you, you have to hear and understand, right, as the people are doing. So that's good advice on to the mentor. Uh, I, would, I would say to the mentee, sometimes we're all both subjects. So it said, do your homework and follow up. Yeah. There's no excuse with LinkedIn, and you you can do you can do your homework on the fly. No excuse. Particularly if you're working with me in a, in a team environment, I always just like give you the social media background of that person. I'm about to meet. I'm on the phone with them. I'm on Zoom with them. Help me quickly. How am I connected to that person? That is very important. But then you, then you have to have follow up and be intentional about that too. Because that's how you get. Yeah, and part of the that's a great point. Part of the follow-up is, especially for the young people in the room, my father found this out 50 years ago, and believe it or not, it's still true today, is you, you do exactly as Mark said. You, you do your homework. You understand where they are. You have a very specific request. Don't just ask for this general open thing. You know, help me with this one step, and then potentially the next one, but help me with this one step. Send a thank you note. That's where you go. Get, get, a, get a business card. These little physical things you can hold in your hand. Find an address and send a physical note. We have heard from a countless number of people throughout the years that have gotten a job specifically because they sent that one thank you note you could touch. 
to somebody that helped them or somebody that interviewed them or somebody. That's the follow-up is you've got to make sure you are treating that person as a human being because that's, they want to hear from you. They want to know what your next step was. And, you, and I actually had Genesis students do that, which is it stands, it does awesome. stand out. But just don't be robotic. You might have a robotic template. Just also yeah. yeah. show that you have heard the mentor, right? And uh, and you have you don't have to agree. Uh, that, that's for sure. But we, we missed one step though. Ask. We missed the ask up front. <laughs> If those girls hadn't pinged me on LinkedIn, I wouldn't know. They would just be sitting there thinking, boy, I sure wish he had called me. <clears throat> Ask, you know, what's the worst that can happen? So now what we usually like to do is know who's in the room and go around. And I, I hate not doing that. That's really what Dennis and Texas and I found it. Now, before when I moved uh, to New York from Russia, didn't know anybody. I was on a fraternity. It was very clicky. So I wanted to create the anti-vent of that. But well, at least here, we're just – Go to okay, Bill Goyler, you know, running a family office. Uh, Simon Vine, you know, Bester, you know, you know, so many subjects, including the Phoenicians. Fred, Fred Greer uh, was playing foosball, uh, apparently, uh, courtesy East. Uh, his roommate was our goalie. Now he's running a $3 billion pension fund. Or Eddie Mondrapart, who thought I went to light at university. And now he's investing in all the impact things that you're probably excited about. And tech, bank tech, health tech, clean tech. Um, YouTube just came out of Alumni Ventures in London. Uh, and now she's you know, venturing on herself uh, and with an uh, entrepreneurial company. Uh, Helen flew from Nigeria. She was with us in Chicago, Detroit. Cincinnati, uh, we miss you in Detroit, though. Okay, I don't remember. Uh, Tino, entrepreneur in Cleveland. Uh, Sam Minim in Chicago on the South Side Tour. It's an urban prairie. Uh, it's such an opportunity there. And Stephen Burke is our Cal Ripken. Every week at 11 o'clock, he uh, explains a, a macroeconomic point and uh, takes questions. You know, no questions or dumb questions. Although we get some I mean, cryptocurrency right now is a big theme, right? I'm a crypto skeptic. The Kool-Aid is so thick right now. And I, you know, are we missing out? No, that's why we turn to Bill Doyclair and he'll give us more nuances. We can talk to my mom and dad at any time. Very good inspiration. Mitzi Purdue, human trafficking. Is, a, is something that we, we try to do, not just make a lot of money together, but help the world. And uh, and she inspired us, and we're now, again, going to have a summit on that topic. So a lot of people are new to our network, like Bill Marcus is picking up in Chicago. Having met him at our at Scaramucci Salt Conference. Um, and a lot of people are doing some interesting things right here, so you might not understand what it is they do. I remember going to a job fair. And I was like, we didn't have internet. And I'm like, okay, I, I think I understand Gallo Wines and selling Gallo Wines. I can like, position myself and like, get in. Like, I learned from just doing it, as, as uh, Peg said, and failing. But failure is okay. Failure is how you really get to the next step. My parents know I fail a lot, so uh, it's okay. <laughs>
Yes. Failure is when you just haven't succeeded yet. Always add the word yet. And there's a new horizon. All right, with that, thank you, everyone. Let's all mingle. And if anybody wants to come up, anybody that I just mentioned or otherwise, um, uh, you know, I think this makes it like, you just ask. Just come on, you know, yeah. this room, just send them a purchase that you can come